Welcome to the Tabletop Submarine, where we dive a little bit deeper into why we love board games. Strap in and prepare for a deep sea adventure. Here are your hosts. Hey, Andrew. Yeah? Archaeologists. Have you heard this? There's a big news story going on about some archaeologists that have discovered an ancient trade route. Um, that is located somewhere in like ancient like Mesopotamia or something, and hmm. this route was made entirely of trees. And they dug it up. They found this old like rotten wood that was mixed in between stone, and it was this ancient trade route that connected different parts of like this ancient society together. And they are making discoveries that this tree, this route, this route was actually guarded by like dogs and different canines so that people could pass through it consistently over and over again without fear of being attacked by robbers hmm. pretty pretty fascinating isn't it uh, it could be yeah well i can't wait to hear more about the merchants of the bark road oh lord <laughs> <laughs> uh, listeners welcome to the tabletop submarine podcast it is so good to have you here as always i am your host josh and with me is my loyal number two and I'm Andrew, and today's guest is Mike Henson from Elf Creek Games. Hey, everybody. Yes. So if you guys know Elf Creek Games, you know why I made that joke today. I mean, I often try to make jokes and puns, but this one, I've been working on trying to make a pun for that game for a while. And uh, I think I finally figured it out, so I'm glad I was able to show it off to Mike today. Mike, <laughs> welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. So I met Mike about, I think it was, I guess it was last year, at a little convention called Proto ATL in Georgia. And he was able to give me some solid advice. He looked at some of my games, gave some feedback on them. And he, I share with him that I'm trying to get to the tabletop industry as a whole for my career, whether it be in design or other things I'm skilled at. And he gave me some solid advice. And I've been in contact with him ever since. We say hi to each other at cons. And we wanted I really wanted to get him on the show because he has lots of wisdom and shares some great stories with me at ProDATL. So I'm really excited to have you here, man. Thanks. Yeah, all the gray hair from my beard, I joke it's from my niece and nephews giving me stress, but it's really the, the wisdom from the board game industry just coming out. Ah, so, okay. Yeah. So I've got that to look forward to. That's great. Yeah, there awesome. you go. You just got to grow the beard out, Andrew. You'll be all right. <laughs> I, I hope I'm heading towards that because I'm starting to get like a weird ketchup red on like the side of my beard. So That could get a little weird. <laughs> So, Mike, if people aren't familiar with your work, where might they know you from? What do you do in the tabletop industry? Well, I do a little bit of everything. With Elf Creek Games, I have uh, kind of shifted more into a development role away from kind of the day-to-day -day operations uh, that I was in. A lot of my time will be working on designs that are coming out, uh, whether that be new games or expansions for existing titles that we have, and then also just listening to pitches at conventions and teaching our games to people. It's kind of my what my role is for uh, for the time being. One thing that always strikes me about Elf Creek games is that they always look fantastic. They yes, are a spectacle to behold. Like, if there's one thing, like, no matter what person may think of, you know, Honey Buzz, Merchants of the Dark Road, Atlantis Rising, everyone always says these games look fantastic. So yeah. when you're looking at a game, Mike, and you're trying to see, is this Elf Creek material, mm -hmm. what are you looking at to get it from, you know, chits of cardboard, maybe some note cards to that point? So one of the things that we kind of do is we can kind of visualize how the game may look with certain art. 
So, mm -hmm. uh, and this kind of goes uh, one of two ways. So the first way is if we're doing a new edition of a game. So with uh, Atlantis Rising, you know, we already had the existing look of the game, the mm -hmm. uh, way that the island was shaped kind of like a starfish. So we already had that example. Um, and then we just thought, how would we want this to be illustrated? How can we make the art pop off of those island tiles? And we had really been a fan of Vincent Dutre. So we mm -hmm. kind of imagined how would Vincent's art look in this game? And if you've played Atlantis Rising, the art's magnificent. So you can kind of see the finished product uh, with that. For or a game like Honey Buzz, we had no idea from the beginning of what type of art we wanted for that game. We knew that we wanted to make the game beautiful, of course, because that is one of our, one of our trademarks, what we're known for. But we actually heard... Uh, and got a recommendation from Vincent for Ann Heitzig, who's the artist of Honey Buzz. She does an amazing job. Uh, she's also done amazing work uh, with Welcome To from Blue Cocker Games is, and also Majesty for the Realm. So we kind mm -hmm. of envisioned how would your art look on this? Uh, Brent, the uh, my best friend who's also kind of the day-to-day -day creative director and he's the president of the company, kind of gave a little bit of art direction to Anne, and then Anne made the art for Honey Buzz, and we were just amazed. Kind of the same thing happened with Merchants as well. Uh, with, like, deluxe bits and whatnot, we kind of envisioned those during the development process, I guess the best way to put it. So, like, how can we make this cardboard into something that people are going to remember? Yeah, art direction is one thing I'm always super fascinating in when it comes to games and trying to get it from, you know, square one where coverage is to the final product where you get these beautiful masterclass games. And I think that really, I think you guys really kind of came to a head with your most recent Kickstarter that I proudly backed, Paradox Initiative, where you had it was mm -hmm. like 13 different artists come together to make different worlds. We had 21 different artists. 21. <laughs> 21. Um, yeah, this was like the who's who of the board game world. You had, you had, you know, you had Vincent Tutrait, Quan Chai Moria. Mm -hmm. What else? We have Beth Sobel. There was Ryan Lockett. Anyone you can think of from like Mr. Cuttington, anyone who has huh. any name in the board game art world was on this Kickstarter and had their own little world. And it's the only time I've shelled out for like two different playmats, almost almost three at one point, to try to get just these beautiful artwork that was on. It. So I really want to know really quickly though what what made you come to that decision to instead of like maybe hiring one artist to do twenty one different worlds, mm -hmm. what made you come to the decision to have twenty one different artists do one world? So we we had this idea because the first edition, and actually it's not twenty one; it was nineteen artists. So I had the number wrong, but. Oh, that's not impressive then. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> if it's under 20, we'll just stop talking about it. But yeah. <laughs> I'll keep going. Uh, so the first edition of Paradox Split Second Games uh, used 15 comic book artists that were local to Chicago to do the worlds. So we decided instead of doing that, which was a pretty awesome idea, let's use board mm -hmm. game artists. So Brent started contacting some artists. Uh, one of the stories that 
if he was on here, he would probably tell us how we got Ryan Lockett and Quan Chai Moria. He basically asked Ryan Lockett at a Panda game manufacturing get-together at Gen Con, hey, do you want to do this game? And Brent listed who he already had. He's like, yeah, you know, I've already got Vincent Dutray who signed on and a couple others. And uh, Ryan said, I've always wanted to do a game with Vincent, so I'm in. <laughs> Ten minutes later, Quan Chai Moria, same conversation, except now he can say that Ryan, Lock uh, Ryan Lockett's doing the game now. Quan Chai says, I've always wanted to do a game with Vincent and Ryan Lockett. I'm in. So it kind of snowballed from there. This game is just going to be amazing to look at uh, table presence-wise. And it's just it's an amazing game altogether um, that Brian Suri did a great job on. This is, like I said, it's a second edition of the game, but it's also his first design. So the fact that he was able to kind of go back, kind of uh, polish some of the rough edges, so to speak, uh, and then... You know, we're bringing it back to life. I mean, it's just it's awesome to see that Brian's first design is coming back out. And, uh, yeah, I'm just I'm happy for him and happy for the team behind it. It's interesting how people in the industry not only like each other and interest each other, but want to work together. I think that's really wonderful. It's not that it's competitive and nasty and cutthroat. It's collaborative. And I find that that is a thread throughout the industry that's really wonderful. And I'm also looking forward to collaborating with some of these artists and some of these other designers that are out there. And so I feel the same way those guys do. Yeah, it's uh, it's great that this industry is not a cutthroat industry because I've, I've got some great friends in the industry that you really, you could say, if you viewed it differently, would be competitors. Right. But in reality, we kind of everybody has a whole viewpoint of uh, rising tide raises all boats. You know, you'll hear that time and time again. But I mean, yep. actually, it's very true with this industry. You know, I'm really happy that that it is that way. Yeah. Something I've said uh, repeatedly is like, especially in the, I guess in all aspects, you said rising tide raises all boats. I say like if me and Andrew had a game, very similar game. And, you know, we pitched it to, like, a Mike at Elf Creek. And you were to take Andrew's game. I would be ecstatic for him. And that's just, I think, an attitude throughout all of gaming is even if you're competing for, you know, that coveted place in a publisher's, you know, lineup, you want you are so happy when your friends succeed because you know the effort you put into it. They probably put in just as much effort to their game. And it really is. That's why I love this industry so much and I want to be a part of it is because it's one of the most positive places you can be. Well, my instruments look like they need to be turned on and buttons need to be smashed, hammers need to be pulled out and smacked for some concussive reinforcement. Let's go ahead and head to our pre-launch and see what we played recently. The pre-launch. Get to know us and our guests. Well, Mike, you have a game that I love. I mean, I absolutely love this game. This is this is one of this is a hidden gem and a very good publishers lineup that not a lot of people know about but once they play it i think i'm gonna let you talk about it. go ahead and talk about the game you want you've been playing okay so uh the game that i chose here is mountain goats from boardgametables.com got what their new name is because they rebranded all play all play okay um uh, mountain goats best way for me to describe it is you are mountain goats climbing up a mountain and you're smacking people at the top of the mountain down to the bottom 
once you get to the top and you wait for people to come knock you off the top of the mountain. So it's kind of like a press your luck, king of the hill, dice rolling game. The last couple times I've played this, I played it with my uh, girlfriend and her two boys, and I got destroyed by uh, by her youngest son twice. It's not surprising, but it's a great game, and it's a lot of fun. It's really happy to be able to introduce that to them. And yeah, I I would recommend this game to anybody. I was actually introduced to it uh, by Julie um, Ahern and Rob Geis, Robert Geisinger. Uh, right before we went on a dice tower cruise last year they're like have you ever played mountain goats no okay well you're playing mountain goats now i mean that was pretty much how this conversation went i was like all right well i guess i'm playing mountain goats and uh, (laughs) that's very interesting because those are not the kind of games i think they'd be interested in playing but that means that that endorses it so much further based on it being against what i would think they wouldn't play exactly and, and Julie is one of the first, you know, she is always mentioning this game, uh, mm. recommending this game. So just because it's a lot of fun and you have mountain goat meeples. I would show you the meeples right now, but they're actually over at my girlfriend's house. Uh, just <laughs> the game over there. So her son's whatever they want. So, but yeah, that's the game that I've been playing a lot of is mountain goats. Oh yeah. When I, I demo pretty frequently, for uh, all play, formerly boardgametables.com. Um, pretty much at all the major conventions. I did PAX recently, I did Origins. Hopefully, I get to Gen Con this year. I'll be able to work with them at Gen Con as well. But Mountain Goats is just so fun to teach. It's just, it's one of the my favorite games to teach because they have a bunch of these little box games that are all very good. But this one is just so charming. Theme is great, you know, nice and simple. Great choice. I'm glad you enjoyed it, Mike. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. This is uh next I want to talk about Andrew's game, which I don't think I've actually ever heard of this game before. So that's a new one for me. <laughs> wow. All right. So this is Luxor from 2018. It was a Spiel des Jahres nominee, but didn't get it because the Zool was just so damn good that year. Uh, but Luxor is an interesting game. It's a archaeological game where you're digging into the tomb of King Tut or whatever, as far as that goes. It's generic that way. But... Um, What's interesting about this one is you have a hand of cards, but you can only play from either the right or the left. So you play a card that moves you four spaces in, right? And you move your your meeple four spaces. Then the next card that you draw goes in between the two sides. It goes to the dead center. So you're constantly having to kind of plan ahead where your hand is to try to do combos to get your meeples into the same spot. And uh, some of the things you're trying to dig up have a two-person requirement, a one-person requirement, or a three-person requirement. So you need to have either one, two, or three meeples in that spot to collect that artifact, and it's a race, of course. So everybody's moving around this little web of interesting things, and there's um, things that pop up, and I have the expansion, so we play with the mummy, and the mummy comes to get you, and some interesting like that. It's a really kind of a fun game, and I would say it's kind of a gateway plus. It's an entry-level kind of game feel, but it has a little bit of some wrinkles to get a little more complexity, and I think it's a lot of fun. I like it. So, so is, is it Luxor or Luxor? This is important for me. <laughs> I think so. I think it's Luxor. I think it's Luxor. Oh, okay. Well, then that's my bad. But I guess I could be, I could be completely wrong. It, it, I guess it doesn't matter too much. But when I think Luxor, I think of the giant pyramid hotel in Vegas. 
So when you said Luxor, I'm like, wait, wait, what, is, what does Luxor mean? And Luxor makes yeah, I guess. more sense, especially if it's Egyptian-themed. So this is a queen yeah. game, and it looks yeah. like a queen game. <laughs> oh, yeah. All queen games look like queen games. There's there's nobody other, there's no other publisher that makes games that look just like that. So this is a queen game, and it, it looks like a queen game. <laughs> I, I like queen as a company, but lots of their games feel like the, they're coming from the same pot, and you can like mix and match and they just it's hard to me to tell sometimes them apart so what really separates this from like other games of this genre or even just a queen game in general i think the hand management absolutely is the thing that puts over the top and makes it different otherwise i think it's mostly a set collection kind of move around a board there's some strategy there but uh the hand management really is the mechanism that makes it very interesting awesome awesome well, I want to round out this pre-launch really quick with Kites from Floodgate Games. This is the party game that they released closer to the end of the year where you are a bunch of kite flyers trying to keep your kites in the air for as long as possible. And it uses sand timers and probably one of the better ways I've seen sand timers used in board games. It is an absolutely good time where you are playing cards down that have different colors on them based on what colors you play down you're able to flip certain timers the timers all have different amounts of sand in them that makes them either go faster or slower so you're constantly having to manage which ones you're flipping and all that stuff it is a delight it really is this is something that you can break out with mostly anybody and it works they we did it at the store i worked for like at our boards and brews night where we just have people come in and drink some of our local taps and they play games. This was a big hit. People were going crazy over this game. It is super welcoming. The art by Beth Sobel, always absolutely amazing. Kites from Floodgate Games. Well, my instruments are ready to rock and roll, so let's head to the, the real meat of this podcast, and let's hear what Mike has to share about his board game story. So... Wow, tales are your okay. So I've got two stories to tell. Um, that kind of ex- really just explain me and my family and board games in general. So uh, in October of 2017, Elf Creek Games launched our first Kickstarter, and it was for End of the Trail. And most of my family had no idea what Kickstarters were. They just wanted to find a way to support me. So my mother, bless her heart, she told my sister whenever she came home, she said, Angel, you need to go on that website and you need to buy Mike's game. So at least one person bought the game. Okay. Um... And they go on, they go on Kickstarter and we've already funded. Now we had a low funding goal, but yeah, we already funded and my mom and my sister went crazy because they were just shocked that people went out and bought a game that I had made or that I had designed. And every time that we go through Kickstarter, every launch day, I think of that story to kind of remind me of my mom's support, my family's support, but also to remind me of just the uh, how, how lucky I am really to be a part of this industry and 
uh, to be able to create things. So that's, that's uh, the first story I wanted to share. The meat and potatoes story that I have is about Elf Creek Games' first trip to Essen Spiel in 2019. I'll start by saying I am somewhat of a procrastinator. So I'll start with that, and it will make a lot more sense during this story. So we're, book, so we're booking everything. We're booking flights. We're booking Airbnbs. We're booking uh, the rental car for Essen. And one thing that I continued to put off was getting my passport. I did not have a passport. I... Uh, yeah, I kept I kept thinking, oh, I can I can get this done in a, in a couple, you know, a couple weeks. When you're saying this in April for an October show, that's true. You can get it done in a couple weeks. When you're saying this in August, not so much. So, a couple things were happening. We were printing uh, Atlantis Rising and we were about to uh, start ocean uh, shipping. So we were about to start getting it to the States. But we had to air freight it over to Germany for the releasing it at Essen. Okay. So uh, for this show, we had myself, Brent, who's uh, the other co-owner of the company. We had Galen, the designer of, uh, of Atlantis Rising. And then we had three of our friends who volunteered um, who are based or were based in the Champaign area. Um, so they were all local to us. All right. So all of this planning and then my procrastination, uh, I did not tell anybody about my procrastination for my passport. Um, but then the Friday before the show, I drove to Chicago, I paid the rush fee, and I did my passport interview. Had all the paperwork they wanted, and then I found out they really didn't need all that paperwork because they threw away like my my itinerary, <laughs> my flight. Yeah. Thanks, U.S. government. <laughs> uh, this was 2019. That's all I'm going to say on that. Um. But then on Monday, the day before our flight to Germany from the beautiful Chicago O'Hare International Airport, I drive another two and a half hours up to Chicago to pick up my passport. Mm. Uh, so within 24 hours of me leaving Champagne to go to Germany, I drove to Chicago to pick up my uh, passport. Luckily, it does not expire till 2029. So hopefully, we don't have to have another story like this for at least a few years. Yeah. So that was the the first. That was just me being a procrastinator. Okay. No questions needed on that. It's just Mike being Mike. <laughs> I did not tell. I did not tell everybody this. That went that went until Tuesday. So the day we were driving up is when my friends found out that this happened. And they all would say, oh, that's just Mike. So now let's talk about some, some more fun. Our air freighted games. So we air freighted 300 games to sell at Essen, plus another 
60, I believe, that were Kickstarter pickups. Okay. All right. So we air freighted 360 games and then some play mats and uh, all of the bits, you know, all the fancy bits that Elf Creek's known for was also uh, air freighted over. I get an email on Monday that for whatever reason, our fulfillment company did not pick up our games, our pallets, and they're uh. waiting at Charles de Gaulle International Airport in Paris. For those who are not good at geography, Paris is in France. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's not in the part of France that's right next to Germany. Nope. It's, you know, it, it, it's a little bit of a haul. And our fulfillment companies uh, who, who are in Strasbourg, which is actually on the German border, yes. but still from Strasbourg, it's a four-hour drive to Essen. And I believe Paris is like a three-hour drive from Strasbourg. So our fulfillment company says, hey, we can we can rent a van and go pick it up, but we're going to have to charge it. I'm like, I don't care. We're about to get on a plane. Yeah. Go get the games because if we don't have games to sell, then why are we flying to another continent? Right. You know, so I didn't tell anybody this because why stress people out? And all of this is happening while I'm driving to Chicago to go get my passport. Okay. Right. So, <laughs> so all this is happening. Right. See, Josh, you don't know me well enough, but now you're you're finding out the fun of Mike. Uh, <laughs> so. They go, they go pick up the games. They don't tell me they have the games yet. But I get an email Tuesday at 6 a.m., okay, four hours before we start our drive to Chicago. I get an email saying, we were able to pick up the games. They have left our facility in Strasbourg. They will be at your booth whenever you get there. Tomorrow. Okay. So I'm like, whew, bullet dodged on that one. I waited until we were at the airport to tell everybody. I waited until Wednesday at the booth to tell Brent because I knew that that would stress him out. <laughs> and I didn't tell him before that because I'm like, there's nothing you can do to fix right. this problem. Why would I, I worry you? So the games get there. This is for almost everybody who is on this trip. Their first trip to Europe is going to Essen. Wow. So we drove a 10-passenger Mercedes van on the Autobahn between Dusseldorf and Essen. Oh, good heavens. Uh, we found out that our friend, who was supposed to be the only driver, uh, had night blindness. We found this out the first day we were in Germany. Oh, my. In that giant 10-passenger van. We had no more hiccups. Uh, which is great. Uh, another humorous thing that happened, Andrew, you'll appreciate this. The first person in the industry that we run into at Essen. Any guesses? It's Daryl? Reiner Knizia. It was Daryl. <laughs> okay. Daryl and That was way off. <laughs> the, the guy who we always see in the States and in Canada is the first person that we see at Essen. Well, he's a big personality. He's got a lot of things going on. And he loves to network he and meet is. people. So it doesn't surprise me that he's one of the first people you see. But it was hysterical that that was like, 
He was walking. We were walking to our booth. He was walking the other way, and I kind of looked. And I, just, I was like, is that, is that Daryl? <laughs> and, and he's like, hey, guys. I was like, yes, it is Daryl. Gave him a big hug. It was great. What a great way to start. Essen was right. amazing. Yeah, it was it was crazy. But Essen was a great show. We met so many people. We sold so many games there. And then and then on the way back, oh, more, no. more shenanigans <laughs> that I was not in oh personally involved in because I'm not a pilot. On takeoff from Copenhagen, because we were flying from Copenhagen to Chicago. On takeoff, uh, our plane hit some geese. Oh, jeez. Oh, no. So they had to burn fuel over the North Sea, and we had to fly back to Copenhagen. They're like, oh, we'll be able to take off in a a little bit after we do the repairs. A couple people, myself included, were able to actually see out the window to see the the wing, the damage. Oh. it was about six inches to a foot from where the geese hit. If they would have been about a, another foot closer to the plane, they would have went into the engine. Gee. <laughs> that would have been a problem. Uh, so we, uh, Katie and I, one of our volunteers, we were stuck in Copenhagen for the night. Um, the only problem is, even though I told the people that were on the other flight, we actually had split up because of we booked through Wikipedia, or not Wikipedia, Expedia. One of them. I must say, how'd you do that? Wow. <laughs> right. There was it was new back in 2019. <laughs> they don't do it. Um, but the other half of our team landed in Chicago. The rental car was in my name oh. that we were going to drive back to Champaign. Oh. So they were like, "Where are you at?" I was at this point. I was asleep right. in Copenhagen, so I didn't respond until I woke up and I said, "Hey, you know, did you not get our last message?" And then by the time I replied, they were asleep, right. so they couldn't get the rental car. Luckily, because O'Hare is a giant airport, they had other rental <laughs> right. cars, but they had to pay too right. much, you know. So everything worked out, but. It was it was a trip that I will remember for the rest of my life, and not just because it was our first Essen, but because of everything that had to happen and everything that did happen during the, the time of the trip. So you were playing a hidden information game that whole time you didn't even know it. Yes. <laughs> yes. I found that out once I got back to Champagne. Oh, Lord. Uh, apparently we won. Yes. It was a co-op <laughs> hidden information exactly. game. Didn't realize that either. Uh, but we won, so that's all that matters. All right, so you shipped over 360 games. How many of those games did you yes. sell? Did you have to bring any of them back? Did you have to fly them back? Did you carry them back because there's only one or two? How would that work? So all of the Kickstarter versions were, were picked okay. up, except for one. And that one was uh, Katie, our volunteer, actually just said, I'll, I'll take it. As, as her copy. Uh, so that worked out. I think we had out of 300 uh, retail editions, we shipped eight back to our fulfillment center in France. That's impressive. Not bad for a first game. And I think we had maybe about 20 uh, playmats, 
and probably about 20 to 25 of the deluxe pieces that got shipped back. So it was it was pretty good. So a lot of our listeners know about Essen as a, a con, right? But how does it compare to Gen Con? Because Gen Con is the biggest that we have. Is it much bigger? Is it slightly bigger? What's the difference between the two? So the best way for me to describe it is you take the Gen Con exhibit hall. Yeah. And you transfer it over there, and there's about five to seven of those. Jeez. And that's us. That's, that's just mad. How do you even, like, navigate that? You do, you do a lot of research before you go. If you're going there for, like, I want to pick up games, or if you're going as I did this year, I researched. I was like, these are the games I want to get. I pre-ordered games. I picked up uh, Revive and Precognition. I paid for, you know, I pre-ordered those before I left. So, yeah, you do a lot of research. Uh, I would say Tabletop Together is probably the best way that you can kind of search through releases. And then also um, Board Game Geek, of course, they always have like a spiel preview. But you can also buy older games there too, depending on the publisher. So how have your processes, and I guess Elf Creek in general, evolved since that first SN spiel? Like where, do, where, just like a look back from where you were then to where you are now. Uh, I would say there's a lot more planning. Uh, it might not seem that way, <laughs> but there's a lot more planning. There's also a bigger, a bigger team that are employees of Elf Creek that go to the show. It's just because we're, you know, we have more employees. Uh, we still do rely on uh, on volunteers, and then also bringing over designers as well for games. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the the process. Like the planning starts months in advance. You know, really, I would say the planning starts in the spring for the for the fall show. So say you know, little old me. I, 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 crew, I make jumpy hippo games or whatever, and I'm, I'm coming out with my, my first game. It's, you know, it's a small little card game. I found it on Kickstarter. I'm bringing it over to Essen, and I'm wanting to get over. I want to have a good time at these conventions, either whether it be Gen Con or Essen, or even like maybe even a small one like PAX or Origins. What advice or maybe like wisdom guidance with your, you know, white beard hair wisdom would you give to a young little publisher? Maybe it's like a three-man team or even just two to have a successful convention experience? I would start by saying go to small conventions. Yeah. Go to local conventions. Start going to conventions. Really all you're trying to do is get, you know, you can use it as a sales point. But for the most part, what we used it for at the beginning, now it's, you know, a sales and marketing, but we use it as a marketing, Mm -hmm. you know, for our, or games that were coming out, we would always demo new games uh, that were, or well, not new games, but coming soon games uh, like uh, Honey Buzz. We actually demoed Honey Buzz for 40 minutes at Essen in 2019, and we pulled it because a bunch of Germans got upset because they wanted to play Atlantis Rising to see if they wanted to buy it. Hmm. So a lot of whenever we're demoing games at Essen specifically, we are demoing the games that people can buy. 
Makes sense. For small companies, for Gen Con, it's going to take a lot for you to actually get a booth. Like you're going to need to show kind of some sales. So I would say Gen Con is kind of the white whale. And it's probably the most expensive convention. I would say it's more expensive than Spiel. And remember with Spiel, you're flying to Europe. If you're based in the States, right? Uh, Also, if you're flying people in Indianapolis is a small airport and it can get pretty pricey flying into Indianapolis too. So Josh, I would say start small. If you want to do Gen Con, don't, Go there selling games, run events. Yeah. Okay. Gen, Gen Con and Origins do ticketed events. Origins, you can get an entrepreneurial booth where, for us, we paid $500 and we got a 10 by 10 booth. And oddly enough, our booth was right across from Leader Games like a year after, um, which one? A year after Vets released. Ah. So like, it was like the second or third big show that Vast was for sale, and I say big in in quotation there in <laughs> in real quotes, not air quotes. But yeah, start small, and if you want to go to a big, a big, you know, a somewhat big con, Origins would probably be the one that I would start uh, start with, and maybe Pax. Mm-hmm. Both of those are great cons. That's some very sound white bearded wisdom advice, Mike. And I, I think it's something that, you know, I, I really do feel like the convention circuit, it's an important and integral part to young publishers um, kind of road to becoming successful like Elf Creek games is. And it's not often talked about. There's tons of talk about how to get a game, good design, production, manufacturing. And they say, yeah, then you need to go to cons. But there is a whole separate conversation about what goes into actually preparing a booth at a con. So I think it's so I guess to kind of wrap the conversation up, I always like asking this question because I find the idea and topic of booth design very fascinating. It's something I like to do when people walk into Elf Creek. What do you want them to feel as they're looking at your games, as they're entering your space of a convention, Mike? What did you, what did you and your team want them to feel? Uh, I mean, the biggest thing I want them to feel is I want them to feel welcome. Yeah. You know, I want them to feel like they can sit down at a table and play the game as long as they want to play it. Uh, and then I want them to, to know that if you really like this game, this game is available. You can go buy it. It's sitting right there. Uh, we've kind of... You know, we really just that we want to be welcoming for uh, anyone in the industry um, because, you know, everyone should be welcome in the industry. Uh, And coming into a booth and being able to sit down and play a game like Atlantis Rising and being able to play as... um, I mean, just something simple as being able to play as a woman, because all of the all of the counselors uh, have me, uh, male and female sides. Uh, being able to play as, uh, or being able to sell to heroes that you know that are different races, in merchants, you know that is a way for people to feel welcomed. 
at the table. The only game that we try not to do diversity in that way, or well, that we couldn't do diversity in that way, actually, was Honey Buzz. Because of your bears, I think. <laughs> no, because all the bees. all the bees are females. Uh, oh, okay. In the, in the solo mode, there are drones, but they're useless. So, <laughs> so there, there you go. Um, There's some social commentary. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, can't go wrong with that, right? So, we just kind of want to, you know, have kind of that welcoming feel, uh, and also have people uh, that can answer, you know, be helpful and answer questions. And, uh, really just make you feel at home whenever you come to our booth. That's something I really appreciate, actually. I always know that when it came to Elf Creek, with the, the you know, three or four conventions I've been to past where you've been there, I always knew that if there was a game you guys were demoing, there was a high chance, if I got there early enough, I mean, if you sell out, you sell out, mm-hmm. that I was going to be able to buy it. And that was comforting. That's why I liked visiting your booth so often, because I was able to see, okay, what do they have? the short amount of time between me pitching and doing some other demoing stuff, what did they still have right now? Whereas I was at PAX and I don't think you guys were at PAX this year, right? I didn't see, yeah. Nope. But I was at, I was at PAX and I swear, like, I don't know, maybe you might be able to back me up on this, Andrew, but 50, I feel like 50% of all the booths were just like, here's a game that's coming to Kickstarter. And they had maybe one demo table. So I was wanting to play all these games, but they were all just Kickstarter, which is fine. I understand you need to do that. But I couldn't get the game. Yeah, I guess that's probably true. But at the same time, I do feel like there's plenty of games that you can buy. But I think there's a combination between the salesmanship of it and also the hype of it, right? You got to get the hype up. You got to get people excited. So demoing things you don't have available sets the tone for things you haven't seen yet. It allows people to get that first look and the excitement of things. But then again, having to be able to purchase them is kind of essential but at the same time maybe that's not why people go to those shows especially if they're flying in you can only take so many games home on an airplane versus if you're local you can drive them home but you know that's two different ways to look at the thought process yeah maybe maybe i'm just a spoiled brat (laughs) i mean that's just what it is it's very possible but at least have the game be on kickstarter like this is my i would love the game to at least be on kickstarter and i can like scan the code and i can buy it right there so my impulses and i get that sweet little you know serotonin rush or whatever it is i don't know i'm probably just a spoiled brat well mike thank you for a wonderful roller coaster of a story we are really deep down in the tabletop trenches let's go ahead and put on our radar and see what's in our future well andrew and mike you two have the same game (laughs) I mean, Mike has an additional one, which I want to talk about, but it looks like you guys have the same game. So if you and you two want to go ahead and take the reins and talk about this one for a minute, I want to hear all ears about this. This is the first time this has happened. <laughs> I'm looking forward to playing Next Stop London. So this is a roll and write, but what's interesting about this one is you have a series of places on a map that you're trying to get to, but you have four different lines, and you each player starts off with a different line to begin with which I think is very interesting. So you you take your little card and you draw on a little line from one station to another, but you're drawing for one quarter of the game the blue, for one quarter of the game you're drawing the red line, for one quarter of the game you're drawing the green line, and so on, and you're trying to do different things as far as connecting them over. And there are different objectives in every game. 
I have not had a chance to play this one yet, but I did watch the playthrough of how to play it, so I'm very curious to see what this one's like going forward. Yeah, I I was just very excited about Next Station London. I was excited about it before it came out because there was talk it might have been at Gen Con, uh, but unfortunately it was not. I just picked this one up uh, for, as designers would like to say, research. Yes. <laughs> that I'm designing, uh, and that's also why I picked up Explorers, uh, which is a roll and write by the one, the only Phil Walker. Yeah, movie. you say research, but I totally endorse that. As I have a roll and write in my quibble right now that I'm working on, so of course I've been doing the research and all the different mm-hmm. cool roll and writes out there to see all the different possibilities, right. to see how they're doing it, see the quality level stuff like that. So. Yeah, I absolutely, and I really like Explorers a lot. By the way, Explorers has a great app you can put on your phone, and you can play it that way. And it's uh, it's okay. really a beautiful implementation as well. Yeah, it's uh, just from looking at the back of the box, it's amazing. Andrew, you might if you've played the app. I haven't played this <laughs> yet, but if you've played it, you might be able to correct me if I'm saying this wrong. But basically, what you're doing is you're going to have a card that you mm-hmm. play. You pick one of the terrain types on the card to do your your bit of what you're doing. And then everybody else does the other uh, terrain, I believe, on the card from what from what I recall. It's been a while since I actually learned about it. I just picked this up at Miniature Market. Um one of the joys of being in St. Louis <laughs> now is miniature movies. Yeah. to me. Um, they are not endorsing this show, just to let you guys know. And I'm not getting paid for this endorsement. Uh, but I was able to, this, to see it over there, and I was able to pick up both those games. And I'm actually looking forward to getting both those played at some point with my girlfriend and her boys. And Well, friends... Yesterday in the mail, I received a package I had been waiting for for a very, 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 very long time. And that was the Avatar The Last Airbender RPG from Magpie Games. The largest Kickstarter, I believe, to come on as far as RPGs goes, definitely. But it might have been the largest Kickstarter last year, period, besides the Brandon Sanderson books that came Mm. out. It was it was it was huge. It was over ten million dollars raised. For those of you who aren't familiar, Avatar: The Last Airbender is a wonderful show that is that was on Nickelodeon for a long time. It's a show I grew up on, and you can watch it today as an adult and still appreciate how amazing and wonderful the animation, the stories, the characters are. And Magpie Games was able to bring this with the help of designers who I love and appreciate like Brandon Conway and Senfu Lim too, that I am very big fans of to the RPG tabletop RPG world, which I am a very much a huge fan of. I'm deep into RPGs, love them so much. i trying to design one myself. And this is using my favorite system, which is powered by the apocalypse, which is a 2d6 storytelling system where me as the GM don't need to roll any dice which is like my favorite thing in the world as, as a game master. I, I don't want to rule about rolling dice, so I want to just tell a story. And Brandon Conway is the designer of probably easily my top three favorite RPGs called Mask, which has to deal with young people, young superheroes becoming into themselves, Teen Titans, Young Justice style. 
And lots of those themes that go with those shows transfer over really well into the Avatar Last Airbender stories, which is a bunch of young people who have this immense power coming into themselves and changing the world. So I am just I went almost all in on this. I got I got a lot of the good stuff. Got the book, the adventure guide, lots of self-material materials, the dice, a nice like play mat with like all the four nations of this world on it. I am I'm running this in April for my store because I'm like I said, I'm one of the DMs there. I run campaigns for them. I'm gonna run a four-week campaign. I am so, so pumped for this. It looks gorgeous. The team nailed it, I think, and I can't wait to dive in and see what they've done with this world. And hopefully they continue to support this as they go. That is Avatar the Last Airbender RPG. Mike, are you much of an RPG guy? I actually never asked you this. Not really. I've I uh especially since moving back to St. Louis, um I are I would say my RPG group is up in Champagne. But I think I, I I think I noticed why you're not going to Proto ATL because you said you're starting this RPG in April. So you're probably going to be doing some prep for the launch, and that's why you can't be with me playing games at Proto ATL. I understand. I, I want to be with you at Proto ATL playing games, <laughs> man. <laughs> it's I. I Ah, you're making me feel bad now. I really want to go, but I can't. I can't take off work. Okay. I work by the hour. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. Next year for sure, though, I'm probably going to go. Yeah. So. But yes. Well, we've kept you down here in the submarine for long enough, Mike. Let's go ahead and shoot right back up to the service, and we'll let you go. Well, Mike, it has been an absolute pleasure, treat, whatever good word comes with those kind of synonyms to have you on the submarine today. If people want more Mike hints in their life or what's, or they want to support you, what can they do? More Mike in their life. That, that sounds great. Uh, well, you can always, um, check me out or check out Elf Creek games on the social medias, uh, at Elf Creek games. And the big one that I use is, uh, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, where I'm just Mike Henson on Instagram. I believe I'm Mike Henson 1982, I think, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's really where you're going to kind of uh, hear from me. And then also uh, where you're going to be able to hear about what's coming up uh, from Elf Creek games. If you want to get a play by play of the blues and their seasons, like how their season's going, follow Mike. He, he will make sure you are up to date. Yes. Yeah. Any sports that are based in St. Louis. So, uh, yeah, the, the blues, the Cardinals, uh, we've got an MLS team that's going to be starting, uh, next month, uh, St. Louis city. So really looking forward to that. Yeah. Just kind of follow me. Uh, and yeah, you'll, you'll see how much fun it is. That's for sure. Well, awesome. Well, Mike, I look forward to seeing you at the next con. Thank you so much for being on the submarine today. If you like what you hear today, want more of the Tabletop Submarine, like us on Facebook, Instagram, all those wonderful socials, and tell your friends about it. As always, my name is Josh. And I'm Andrew. And this has been the Tabletop Submarine.